This is just where Jesus, he's got these last few hours with his disciples before he's taken into custody, and he just pours out his heart. So I just, uh, I want to give this more time and let us sit in it, marinate in it for a few weeks of the summer. So we're going to be in John 13 and in chapter 15. These, in some ways, these are kind of mirror passages in this discourse. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow it there in the bulletin. Let, let me take one minute of just a personal privilege here. I'm speaking like I'm using Robert's Rules of Order or something. Uh, Mr. Moderator, point of personal privilege. But the, uh, th- this was mentioned by Tripp in the prayer, but I, I always need your prayer. It always means a ton to me when you say that you pray for me. I and Tim and Jake need it all the time. But uh, I really want to ask for your prayers this week. This, this conference that I'm speaking at, this high school conference, it's the one that our high schoolers will be at. There's going to be, I think, like 1,400 people there with the students and the chaperones and everything. And, uh, you know, I don't want to put any confidence in this experience or, you know, like that there's just kind of some magic in the building or anything like that. But this is a week where a lot of people have become Christians and, uh, or at least have kind of connected the dots or understood the gospel in a fresh new way. And um, sometimes even the adults have had this happen that came with the, you know, with the high schoolers. So please pray for me. Um, uh, my son came up to me after, uh, after the first service and said, one down, 11 to go, because uh, I'm preaching twice for uh, five nights after this, so I've got to preach 12 times this week. So thanks for the encouragement, Henry. <laughs> but uh, but I, anyway, I just, you're, you're my church family. I really would appreciate your prayer and for all the other helpers and students and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and, and I told Henry this, the way I'm going to start off is just to say, look, um, you know, I, I'm 48. I'm like triple your age. I have male pattern baldness. I'm bad at sports. Like, you know, for something to happen here, it's not going to be through my coolness. So let's pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to, to work in our midst. And boy, that'll grab them, won't it? Anyway. All right. John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 33. When, um, before I read this, when I was in seminary, uh, you know, preacher, grad school, lived in a house with some guys, and when, uh, one year, two of these guys, they both worked in the admissions office of the seminary. And I remember one weekend, there was some, I can't remember what it was, there was some important task that had to be done. The guy that would normally do it was leaving town, and so he had entrusted this task to the other housemate. And I think he was concerned that the other housemate would forget it. And so, not only did he remind him, you know, and like, it's like, you've got to do this when I'm gone. But he left reminder notes all over the house. And this is not, I'm not embellishing for a better story. He left like 12 notes that all said the same thing. Like, there were two that went up our little one flight of stairs. He put two notes that said the same thing. And I remember the other guy who was left behind that was supposed to do the, the task just saying, okay, you know, like, I'll do it. I, I, I get the message that this is important. But repetition, repetition, repetition. And we've all had this done to us. Our parents did this to us. And um, then we said, you know, we thought, well, if I'm ever a mom or a dad, I won't do that. And, of course, yes, we do. Because if something's important, you know, we want to make sure someone understands, we'll say it over and over. And I want you to think about this before I read this. Just, just from these two fairly short parts of this disc- discourse, Jesus says one thing five times. Again, he's got these last few hours with his disciples. Nothing he's saying 
is at odds with anything else he has said before. I mean, they've lived with him for three years. They know the kinds of things Jesus talks about. We've got this last little bit of time, and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I want you to listen for this one thing that he says five times. You've got to do this. John 13, beginning in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By all this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we concede the point. We will concede the point that we need to love one another, that we want to give love and we want to receive love, but we are not good at it. We love ourselves, and even that not in the right way. So how we need to hear you, we always need to hear you. But this is so crucial. So please open our hearts and our ears, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For about the last two years, for people who've been around, you've heard at different points my sagas with my my backyard and um, this kind of ongoing adventure about old stuff I'm taking out and there's, uh, uh, what what do you call them, invasive plants and ugly plants and dead plants. So that's just an ongoing struggle. But, you know, as you take stuff out, you start to think about what can I put in. And so last summer I started thinking about um, putting a boulder in the backyard near our, our garden. I, I love that in civic spaces where you'll see big, big rocks, big stonework. And I'd seen that in local people's gardens. So I thought, man, I think, I think I'm going to go get a boulder. You know, like that's a great thing to go do. I'm going to go buy a boulder. So I've never done that before. So there's a stone company about two miles from our house, drove there. This, okay, all they sell is stone. That's all they sell. So I walked in and what I wanted to get was blue granite because as many of you know, that's the state stone of South Carolina. And also I had read somewhere or heard that like butterflies like to sun 
on blue granite. So I thought, man, if I could get a boulder and it was the state stone and we got butterflies, that would be fantastic. So I went to the stone store or the boulder store and uh, walked in, didn't really know how it works, just walked up and said, yeah, I think I'd like to get some blue granite. And the lady behind the counter said, never heard of it. And I didn't know if she was being sarcastic, like if you were at a piano bar and said, you know, piano man, the guy said, never heard of it. You know, that, that kind of joke. And, I, and, you know, you don't want to be combative. And I, I said, yeah, it's the state stone of South Carolina. And she went, okay, thanks. Walked off, you know, it's, didn't know what to do. And I, I didn't say this to her, but I just, you know, I, I'm walking to my car thinking, all you sell is stone. You know, like all day, every day, you sell stone. Shouldn't you be pretty good at this? And to me, that's like a window into what it, what it must be like for people who know kind of just even a cursory knowledge of the Bible, especially the New Testament, as they look at Christians and the church. And what I mean by that is that, you know, for, for those who know something about the Bible and who watch us, and maybe they don't know a lot, but maybe they know that, yeah, I think Jesus somewhere said the two biggest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor. He said that summarizes everything. And, uh, and like there's a chapter about love. I've heard it read at weddings. Love is this, love is that. There's nothing greater than love. As they watch us, I mean, do, do they watch us and think, shouldn't you be pretty great at this? But you are so wrapped around the axle about, you know, politics or cultural deterioration or how our educational system is letting people down, letting our children down, or you fixate on parenting. Like, shouldn't you really be great at love? Because even as you talk about these things, even the way you talk about it is so shrill Shouldn't you be good at this? And of course, they'd be right. And, and think about this. As I said, Jesus, he's just, he's just pouring it out, this last little bit of time he's got. And think about this. In this whole discourse, he is not talking about politics. He could have talked about Rome. He could have talked about Roman uh, militarism doesn't talk about it. He does at some level talk about cultural engagement, but the way he talks about it is he says, hey, don't be surprised if they hate you. If the world hates you, don't be surprised because the world hated me first, and a servant is not greater than his master. And yet, when there's almost any cultural pushback against churches or Christianity, we act like people who are shocked. How dare they? When pretty much one of the main things he said about cultural engagement was, expect that. So we didn't listen to that. And he doesn't talk about educational methodology. And he doesn't talk about parenting. But again and again and again, he's saying to these men, and this is not a fake community of men, this is a group of men who are not naturally predisposed to be close-knit. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. He says to them, you've got to love one another. I command you to love one another. So let's look at that because, you know, these are, humanly speaking, the future leaders 
of what the Apostles' Creed calls the Holy Catholic Church. They were sinners. They're not a different kind of human being, but they are apostles. And he is setting the DNA for what our relationships are supposed to be like. He's saying to them, and he through the Scriptures is saying to us, you've got to love one another. So let's look at it this way. I want to look at a couple of things. The first is just how we love. How? And then second, what does love bring? When love does happen, what does it bring with it according to Jesus? Okay? And on the first one, how we love, there's, that, that could be in a, a, at least two senses of the word how. I mean, the first would be how is it possible that we can love the way Jesus wants us to? If we are naturally you know, I said this at the beginning, if we're naturally self-absorbed, if we're naturally not good at loving, we're not famous for being the most loving person people know or loving community that people know, how do we do it? But the other way is then, how do you do it? Like, what would doing love look like? What would it involve? So, let's look at those under the first point. All right, how we love. First off, how is it possible? And I want you to look at what he says in verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And then he says something that's as old as the Old Testament. So why does he say it's new? It's not a new act. It's a new degree. And I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. I think for, especially for us as Americans, I think especially for many of us as Southerners, if we were just, you know, consistently nice, we would feel like we were in the 95th percentile. If I'm just consistently nice to people, and he is calling us to do something so beyond niceness, countercultural, counterintuitive. Here's the new commandment. It's not simply love people, be nice. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. Look down in verse 12, chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's not just saying, now look, I want you to go out there. I want you to be a friendly, positive group of people that represent me and be nice to every single person that you meet. He's saying, I want you to love each other in the way, in the manner, to the degree that I have loved you. And that is daunting. You know, I, I mention this from time to time, and this is not as faddish as it once was, but, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It is it, almost jaw-dropping. Right. What would Jesus do? He might raise the, the dead. <laughs> what would Jesus do? He might read your mind. It, I mean, it's not just a simple little formula. Oh, what would Jesus do? I'll do that. What he did is unbelievable. How does he love? He loves completely. He loves with his feelings. He calls them children. He says, you know, I don't call you slaves. I call you my friends. This is God in the flesh sitting there with them saying, you are my friends. He loves them with his actions. He loves them with his time. He says, now, with one another, do that. How do we do that? Go back a few verses in chapter 15 to verse 9. 
And he says this, you know, you can just kind of fly past this, and I think this is why we need to sit with it and marinate in it. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now think about what he's saying. He doesn't use this language, but I'm going to be theological. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before there was molecule number one, existed in bliss. Between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, it's a mystery. Between the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father, there was perfect connection, perfect giving perfect delight and enjoyment of one another, perfect connection and understanding of one another. And Jesus says, when the Father sent me from heaven and I've become flesh, and that's how John starts, the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh. And as we said last week, it took the church centuries to try to hammer that out. And it's still a mystery. 100% God, 100% man. When he sends me, I I still participate in that circle of love. The Father in his love sends me. And now I have taken that love that we have and that he shows to me, and it's gone out of the Trinity. And I've given it to you. And now I want you to traffic in that with one another. And he's saying that to people, you know, I mentioned this earlier, that are not inclined to be buddy-buddy. You know, I, I think we can kind of have a mental picture that like, this is the last gathering, this is the last huddle, and he's saying, we've got to love each other. It's almost like the last night of camp, you know, and like, they're all going like, we do, we do. Let's sing that song again. And think about, okay, think about two of the men who are sitting right there. One you've heard of and one you might be rusty on. One is Matthew, wrote the first gospel. The other is an, is an apostle we hardly ever talk about. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Canaanian. Do you know what a zealot was? A political activist. The zealots wanted to overthrow Rome, which, I hope this isn't irreverent, but it's kind of cool that there was an apostle who would like be into plots, you know? Here's a guy that can't stay in Rome. Like, he goes by the term Simon the Zealot. It's important to him. Here's Matthew, who's a Jewish sellout who works for Rome. Who would be, like, uh, very unpopular with his Jewish peers, but utterly unpopular with a zealot. Jesus is looking at these two men. I mean, think about team building. That these are two apostles. And he's saying to them, I'm about to go. Where I'm going, you can't come. So what's that going to mean? Like, what, even, what's that going to mean for you two? Have any of you been, and this is less and less something that, that we experience, but are any of you in a family where there was some older relative, and it was probably a matriarch, like a grandmother, who always coordinated family reunions? And people went to the family reunions because they like her. And she knows, they know that she loves them. And then she dies, and the family reunions stop. Why? Because she's gone, and now we just kind of default to what we have. 
And Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. Physically, I'm, I'm not going to be in front of you anymore, but you too are going to physically be with each other. And this is not a fake community. You must love one another. How can you do that? Only if you've experienced the love of the Father shown to the Son and then the love of the Son shown to you. Um, Let's think about this next one. How do you do it? How how is it possible? It has to start with God. It doesn't come from us manufacturing it in ourselves. And Americans think, oh yeah, if there's something to do, I'll manufacture it. We can't. We cannot manufacture the love that He's calling us to. It has to find its origin in God who is love. How do you do it? Now, this pushes us to the gospel because look at what he says in verse, chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. In another place in this upper room discourse, he talks about like abiding in my words. This is not just knowing about the Bible, but living in my words sleeping in my love, taking walks in my love, thinking and walking around in my love. What does that look like? I mean, that's going to mean being in the Bible more. It's going to mean praying. But let's, I mean, how, how do you do that as a loveless person? One thing it means is this, is that you go to Jesus And when you actually believe in Him, here's what you're saying. You're saying, I believe that when you laid down your life for me, there is no greater love than that. When you laid down your life for me, your friend, that you paid the price for all my lovelessness. And you understand, a a follower of Jesus is someone who can say, the pettiness and the selfishness and the hatred that I'm going to do 10 years from now, tragically, that I haven't even done yet, is already paid for. I'm already clean. And the way that God the Father sees me is as if I had loved as flawlessly as His Son. That's how He sees me. That's how He regards me. But then on top of all that, when he laid down his life for me, it says in the New Testament, he broke the power of sin. I don't have to live as somebody who's dominated by lovelessness. I don't have to live as somebody who is controlled by selfishness. And Jesus says to these men, you are going to have to live in the words that I said to you. And live in the reality of what I've done for you. You've got to abide in it. I mean, that is different than five-minute quiet time, check that off, out of sight, out of mind. Perhaps that's better than nothing. Live in my words. Live in my love. You you do it by abiding, but then he says something else. And sometimes to us, this is, we don't know what to do with this word. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Just visually think about it this way. I put a quote on the front of the bulletin by a theologian about there's a cascade of love that starts with God, goes through the incarnation, comes down to his people, and spreads to one another. Think about what Jesus is saying. Like here, this is imperfect, okay, but we're just trying to understand. Here's the Father, here's the Son, here are Jesus' followers. The Father loves the Son. The Son comes in His love, and He loves His people. How does He show His love for His people? By obeying the Father. How do His people show love for one another? According to Jesus, by obeying the Son. By obeying Him. And at some level, that might sound like a relief, like, hey, He never commanded me to babysit for my friend's kids, so... Okay, off the hook. Well, think about the kinds of things Jesus did command. He says to be a disciple is to be taught to obey everything he's commanded. He said things like forgive one another. And man, forgiveness is a great concept. You have to do it. And then it's like it feels like it will tear your heart out. Forgiveness is an awesome concept until somebody truly hurts you and then it feels like To forgive them would be like driving a knife inside of myself. And Jesus says, you must love one another. Like, you must forgive Christians who hurt you. He says things like, and we don't talk about this one a lot, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Is he commanding us to be harsh with one another? No, but he's saying, in the same way that I came as a shepherd, and if a sheep is wandering off, the loving shepherd goes after the wandering sheep. I want all my little under-shepherds to do that with each other. And even though you're capable of wandering yourself, so you be gentle when you do it. But if you see your brother or sister wandering off, you go speak truth in love to your brother and sister. And man, that is hard and awkward and just doesn't fit in the southern playbook. He says, when you see a Christian wandering off, you must love one another. I'm commanding you. Last week, wash one another's feet, and there is the babysitting. There is the, hey, can you come help me out? And there was this fun thing you were about to do, and you know you need to go help your brother or sister. And there's the clash. Take off your outer garment and wrap a towel around your waist and wash your brother's feet. And I would just say to you, as I said at the first service, I'm standing before you and I feel like I haven't left kindergarten on this. I'm not speaking from the moral high ground. But he's saying to us, love one another. If loving other Christians doesn't regularly mess up our productivity, our efficiency, our scheduling, then this is not sinking in. It will always work that way. I'm going to say it again. If, if we don't find ourselves on a regular basis where the fun thing that I had in mind gets upended, 
or interrupted, or I'm called upon to do this and I don't like doing this. If that doesn't happen on a regular basis from relationships with other Christians, then this is not sinking in. He says, this is how you love. This is how you love. When you do it, what does it bring? Because, you know, I, the, the, I don't want to discourage you as somebody who's bad at it and we think about, man, maybe I've just kind of been thinking like I'm going to be nice to everybody and that checks off the list and he's calling us to something so much greater and to feel discouraged by it. Jesus gives a command, but he says, when this happens, what comes with it? And this is great. Two, at least two things. Number one, witness. Look up at the top, chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how people know that you're a Jesus follower, is when you, you're not just nice, but you actually love. Um, our pastor who's about to plant our first church plant, Tim Dodge came here from being the RUF minister, college minister at Furman. Before Tim, there was a man named Dustin Salter. And early in our young church's life, Dustin, just a few months in his job, just bought a bicycle that day, was taking on a little test spin around the block, came off the bike, hit his head on the pavement, and was... Um, what ended up being fatally injured. It took months, but he died of his wounds. And just very quickly into that, um, Redeemer Presbyterian, our sister congregation up in TR, like across the street from Furman, and downtown Prez as a church plant, and other churches really just kind of tried to move in and try to care for this family. And a couple of days into that, I happened to be sitting in the ICU with Dustin's wife, Leanne Salter. And she had a friend with her that was visiting from Texas, where they had moved from. And sort of out of the blue, her friend looked at me and said, I want to tell you something. She said, watching these churches has renewed my faith. And she didn't say what the context was. And she didn't say what had burned her, but it just seemed pretty evident, like somewhere along the line, she got burned. And what came through was not a sermon or not us telling her to do something. It was watching Christians care for each other. Jesus said the great witness is not how shrill we can be or having a seat at the table of power. It is to love one another deeply. It's witness. Huge, we're going to be talking about this more in the weeks ahead, huge implications for racial relationships. We've done niceness. If we keep doing only niceness, we're going to get what we've got. We will have to love more deeply for there to be change. There's witness, and there's joy. Look at what he says in chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. If, you'll, if we'll hear it, this is an amazing claim. He's saying, what I want 
for you men. Like Simon the Zealot, what I want for you. Matthew, what I want for you. Peter, what I want for you, even as you're about to deny me. The joy that has moved throughout the Trinity, that finds its origin in God himself, like pure, pure joy. The joy that I have about you, incredible that Jesus would say, my joy is in you. Men that get it wrong, men that make mistakes, men that mishandle things, men that are about to flee, my joy is in you. God in the flesh says, I want you to experience that kind of joy. It's been interesting to me to hear person after person after person. Uh, I'm sure that Chris and Madeline Fike will, will say some version of this when they get back. That some of you will be somewhere, in, like in another country, somewhere where English is not spoken, and you'll go to a worship service, and you don't understand a word of it. Now, if you live there a year, you know, learn some of the words. We're Americans, you know. You know the joke about what do you call somebody that speaks three languages, trilingual? What do you call somebody that speaks two languages, bilingual? What do you call somebody that speaks one language? American. So learn the language if you're going to live somewhere. But you know what? You go somewhere and visit, maybe one Sunday, two, and you're with people, and you didn't understand any of the words of the songs. Maybe you figured out where Jesus was in the lyrics. Did not understand any of the sermon, and just I've heard person after person say this, and I've experienced it before, just say, I just had so much joy. Like, I felt joy. And Jesus would say, that was not pretend. And it wasn't just like cross-cultural peace, love, and groovy feelings. What you bumped into is the joy that finds its origin in God himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you bumped into it. To really love, does it stretch us? It stretches all of us. I want what I want. I want to craft my day at the beginning of the day, and I want the day to adhere to the plan. And what what a recipe not to love others, even if I think I'm trying. To open our hearts to one another. And Jesus says, the reason I want that for you is not so that your scheduling gets train wrecked. I want you to have joy. God in the flesh looks at crummy people <laughs> who get it wrong all the time and says, you're my little children. I don't call you slaves. You're my friends. I want you to have joy. And you're going to have to love one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this... This is hard for us. It doesn't come naturally. We pray that you would so convince us of your love first, the love you had before we showed up, the love that sent Jesus to live and die and be raised for us, the love that will bring him back, that we would walk in that and live in that and eat and drink that and then love one another. Help us, Father. It's hard for us to even know where to start. We pray that because of your love, we won't feel that we're living in a pressure cooker, 
that we'll feel very freed to love because we are loved. And Father, if anybody here still wonders, is my selfishness, is my hate, is it, is it still on me? Would you enable them to turn to Jesus, to believe that He laid down His life for unloving people like us? Give that person saving faith. We pray in His name. Amen.